Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. In the lead up to the winner announcement on the 24th of November, we'll be celebrating each of the shortlisted books in a weekly mini podcast episode featuring prize director Toby Mundy in conversation with all six authors. In case you missed it, the titles on this year's shortlist are 1, 2, 3, 4, The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown, The Idea of the Brain, A History by Matthew Cobb, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture by Sudhir Hazirasinghe. Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women by Christina Lamb, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Woman's Life in 19th Century Japan by Amy Stanley, and last but not least, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story by Kate Summerscale. This week, we kick off with Craig Brown's 1234, a fascinating kaleidoscopic biography of the Beatles. Toby talks to Craig about his research and love of the Beatles, which of the Fab Four he would want to be if he had the choice. And we'll also hear a short reading from the book. Hello and welcome to the latest Bailey Gifford Prize in Conversation. I'm delighted to welcome Craig Brown, the author of One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time. Uh, welcome, Craig. Thank you. Um, what on earth made you decide to write a book about the Beatles? How, how, I was just doing an Amazon search before we started talking about books on the Beatles, and there are a lot. <laughs> what, well, how did you come to this idea? People reckon there are about a thousand books, so mine is a thousand and one. But in a way, I mean, that's, that suited me because it meant that everyone else had done the sort of heavy lifting. Um, <laughs> and you didn't just have to do a kind of plod through the story. Though, of course, the story is one of the great kind of 20th century stories with all these different characters. Um, but it meant that I could sort of do what I wanted with it. Whereas if I was the first person to write a, a book about the Beatles, you'd have to be dutiful and slightly ploddy. And I don't like ploddy books. No, well, this is anything but a, pl but a ploddy book, I must say. And, and what it, so your previous book was about Princess Margaret, who managed, who was obviously incredibly famous uh, within and use that fame to find to be in a number of improbable p situations with improbable people and the Beatles of course lived to be insanely famous within their own lifetimes as well and indeed obviously McCartney's st and Ringo are still with us how did what made you decide to write about them in the first place uh, on the subject of um, Princess Margaret I there is actually a moment in the book which there had also been in my book about Princess Margaret where these two forces collide and I think I think it was at the uh, premiere of Hard Day's Night um, and it's an interesting moment in kind of English social history because these uh, lads from Liverpool their fame and their prestige is eclipsing the royal families uh, and I think they're both both lots are aware of it so that's an interesting uh, moment and of course now uh, the royal family are, are sort of wannabe celebrities really <laughs> Whereas in the past, maybe celebrities have been wannabe royals. Yeah. Um, and so I think that uh, I now can't remember what your <laughs> question was. But, um, but what, I, what made you embark upon this? So, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, well, I just, um, I mean, the Beatles have, uh, I was born in 1957. So um, the Beatles have been with me 
all my conscious life, I think. From the first time I remember is uh, getting, uh, me and my uh, brothers got um, Beatles wigs, for it must have been Christmas 1963 or 64. Very hard, plastic, scratchy uh, <laughs> wigs. And so, and I think they've been in everyone's life. They're, they're, in a way, they're in lives of people who were born after 1970 when they split up because everyone, you know, uh, my children's generation and younger are, are all aware of at least most of the Beatles songs. They're just in your heads and, you can, and the world was changed by the Beatles in all over the world, like the um, Soviet Union, Gorbachev and Putin both told Paul McCartney that they, they changed during the 60s, they changed the way that the youth of the Soviet Union thought and they were an, an emblem of freedom. And so there's just so much to write about the Beatles, which isn't purely um, the history of the, these four individuals. I also have a, a kind of penchant for the, the kind of the Beatles losers or the Beatles victims, as it were, people who were kind of caught on the tide of the Beatles and were sort of thrown to one side. People like the singing nun, who had been the big number one uh, singer in America. Uh, after JFK's death in November 63 and before the Beatles arrived uh, in early 64. Uh, and so I go into her, I, I, I follow these kind of wild goose chases and I don't mind. I think a writer should, ju you should just go where your nose takes you. And if it's off the subject, who cares? It's, it's on your subject, it's on the subject of your brain. The book does a brilliant job at sort of capturing those bit part players. I mean, there was there was the would you would you remind us of the um, the comedy double acts who were on the Ed Sullivan show on the same night as the Beatles? There's seventy three yes. million people are watching. Yes, they were a young uh, comedy act, and I now can't remember their names. Mitzi and anyway, um, and it was their big break. Uh, this Ed Sullivan show, and you must remember that. That was the first time the Beatles had been seen in America and it had the most huge impact. It wasn't like in England where they became more famous over the course of a year. In America, they became really famous overnight or even within half an hour of the <laughs> show's progress. Anyway, this poor comedy act uh, came in from LA. It was their big break to be on the Ed Sullivan show, which was a huge show in America. Uh, and they were faced with this uh, 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 audience of, 15 year old screaming girls and theirs was rather a kind of sophisticated sort of Mike Nichol kind of act and of course they just completely bombed um, and so and they were so embarrassed they wouldn't go home because they thought that everyone would recognize them and and alas they went and they took themselves off to Miami and quite by chance they were walking down the street to Miami and the Beatles car drew up the Beatles had then gone to Miami to meet Muhammad Ali among other things and actually for the second part, the, the second thing of uh, Ed Sullivan. And uh, they had got on well with John Lennon. Um, and, you know, he, <laughs> he said hi, but they, they, were, they were traumatized by it. They didn't work for a year or something after no, that, did no, they? No, it's, it was very bad luck. <laughs> and so there are, there are these people, or people like Cliff Richard or Frank Sinatra, who'd been, or Elvis Presley, who'd been big stars before uh, they came. I mean, Cliff was only about, two weeks difference in his age and John Lennon's. And yeah. he'd done, before they'd made a first, their first single, he'd done two movies, he was really riding high. And then suddenly, 
he was yesterday's news and he was sort of starring in pantomimes and things like that. And, and it's fair to say that Cliff is still not, is still not a huge Beatles fan, isn't it? I think. No, it's interesting if you look up. I mean, basically Cliff Richard, who I met once and seemed a very uh, nice character. Um, but he's still, every interview he does, if someone mentions the Beatles, a little tone of uh, bitterness <laughs> comes in, you know, and he says, well, I got more number ones in a short time, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but, but poor old Cliff never really cracked America, which they oh. certainly did. Um, and amongst, among your other wonderful supporting uh, characters are the um, Jane Asher's parents, Richard and Ma Margaret, Margot? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I it, think they're, they're uh, sort of, the book has also heroes, and I think they're great heroic figures. Paul went and started going out with uh, Jane when they were both young. I mean, the, one of the things that always strikes me about when I was writing the book is how, quite how young all the Beatles were. They're all under the age of 30 when they split up. Um, anyway, so uh, Paul, who in a way had the closest family life, the richest family life in Liverpool, uh, he kind of needed a family. The, the others had either got married or had their own houses. And the Ashes, um, Jane Asher's parents asked him to stay in their house in Wigmore Street. And they were a very, very kind of cultured uh, couple. The mother taught oboe. She, in fact, taught um, George Martin oboe. <laughs> I mean, had taught him 10 years before. Uh, and the father was an amazingly gifted uh, uh, doctor who, um, who started, who invented the term, um, what's it called, syndrome? Um, can you remember? <laughs> Um, it's a famous um, uh, um, Munchausen's by Munchausen syndrome. He by proxy, yeah. Munchausen, um, and was a very witty uh, uh, medical writer as well. Anyway, Paul, within this uh, culture, just really flourished, and he he became very avaricious for reading and listening to classical music, listening to uh, modern uh, music, um, and all these songs just flowed flowed out of him and I, so I think I, I say in the book that if I you know everyone fantasizes about being a Beatle but I'd, if I'd, I could choose to be any Beatle at any time I'd be um, Paul McCartney living with the ashes. But and it's this, one, it's this wonderful refuge for him isn't he where there's a, the world's press camped outside and he's inside having meals with the family and reading books and then is yeah. it shinning up, shinning up a drain pipe at the back of the house to escape <laughs> is that right? Nice dog to Asher when you worked out a way he could escape without going through the back door and he, he went along the drain pipe and then uh, the, the man who lived in the next door house some old uh, crusty old colonel he said would you mind if my, my sort of son-in-law as it were came through your house in order to get out. Um, it was so it was a spirit of adventure as well, yeah. And there's, I mean, the, the book is full of really, uh, really memorable and arresting vignettes. The other, I, for me as a reader, of course, the other, um, the other uh, unsung, well, not unsung hero, but the other big hero of the book is Brian Epstein, who you opened with. Yeah, yeah. And who, of course, I think has the last, the last pages of the book as well. Yeah, the, the first and last pages. Um, you, I really sense that you really grew to quite like and admire Epstein. I, I thought um, he was uh, one of the, well, perhaps the most fascinating character because actually, and I might uh, read a bit, but the, the, um, the, the moment he meets the Beatles, it's the great break for the Beatles. And that, that I think the Beatles may well not have uh, succeeded without him. Uh, but it's also the moment where uh, Brian Epstein sort of begins a, a kind of descent into hell, that he was just very, very uncomfortable 
in himself and somehow success and fame um, accentuated that, uh, that discomfort. Uh, and he took, I mean, it was funny for me as a sort of Beatles fan, one always saw him as the sort of sensible one wearing the suit and good with uh, figures and, uh, you know, organized everything, why they could go wild. But in fact, uh, the truth is that he was taking far more drugs than any of them and really couldn't cope with, uh, with life at all. And of course, it ends with his suicide. Yes. Uh, so you, you, you mentioned you're going to read a bit. You're going to, I think you are going to kindly read a bit from the book, aren't you? Would, can I persuade you to do so now for us? Yes. So this is just the, the, the very uh, beginning. Um, and it, it starts with uh, the book's title, which is one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. In their neat black suits and ties, Brian Epstein and his personal assistant, Alistair Taylor, make their way down the 18 steep steps into the sweaty basement on Matthew Street. Brian finds it as black as a deep grave, dank and damp and smelly. He wishes he hadn't come. Both he and Taylor would prefer to be attending a classical concert at the Philharmonic, but curiosity got the better of them. Four young musicians saunter onto the stage. Brian recognizes them from the family record shop he manages. They are the ones who lounge around in the booths, listening to the latest discs and chatting to the girls with absolutely no intention whatsoever of buying a record. Between songs, the three yobs with guitars start yelling and swearing, turning their backs on the audience and pretending to hit one another. Taylor notices Brian's eyes widen with amazement. Taylor himself is undergoing one of the most shocking experiences of his life. He says it's like somebody thumping you, and he's pretty sure that Brian feels the same. After the show, Taylor says, they're just awful. They are awful, agrees Brian, but I also think they're fabulous. Let's just go and say hello. George is the first of the Beatles to spot the man from the record shop approaching. Hello there, he says. What brings Mr. Epstein here? And so that's the first chapter. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of mythology around the Beatles uh, and you're um, you know, a, a, rigorous, a rigorous satirist and columnist. Um, how did you navigate? I mean, what's the, what are the biggest myths and controversies that you had to unpick, if you like, around the Beatles? Uh, people are, well, um, there's, think, the, the, well, there's Lennon's assault at that wedding, isn't there? Which you you give us all the you give us yeah. all the multiple points of view of when John Lennon assaults somebody at a wedding. I'm, I'm sure all my uh, fellow long listees will have encountered this in your writing a book uh, that no one uh, no one description of any event is the same as any other, and you have to kind of make this choice, and and you can't go on in a book saying, well, there are all these six accounts to choose from, these twenty accounts to choose. You've just got to choose them and get on, otherwise the narrative becomes so muddled up. But at one point I do, in a way, make a joke of this or make a feature of it. And that, uh, that uh, before the Beatles were uh, really famous, uh, John beat a local disc jockey in uh, Liverpool up. Uh, he, he beat him up at a party. I think it was Paul's 21st. Um, pretty, ba pretty badly, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but then there are accounts, of course, the people who don't like, the biographers who don't like John, <laughs> they, they nearly killed him. And the ones who do like John say it was a mild stretch. And so I, I have a sort of chart 
of all the different accounts uh, and all the different injuries. And of course, the truth is that, you know, it's lost to history. No one, I don't imagine the, uh, the hospital kept records. Uh, so you, you, you don't know, even though it's very recent history, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, 60 years old. Um, there's no way we'll ever know which, which was the truth. It doesn't really matter in that case, but there are so many cases in history where things do matter, but you still, you still wouldn't know uh, what the truth was. And how have the, how has the, how's the beetle industry, the beetleologist, responded to your book? Are you... Um, well, I, I thought I'd get a kind of, you know, because people are very possessive, understandably, um, about the beetles. And so I thought there'd be lots and lots of sort of tut-tutting. Um, uh, there's been a, 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 but basically it's gone down very well because it's not, uh, it's not uh, particularly satirical. I mean, it's a, it, in a way, it's a fan book in that they, they're part of my head, part of my brain. Um, the, 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 there's a co uh, the controversial chapter, I suppose, is one about, um, or a particular one about Yoko Ono, who I'm not as enamored with as, as some Beatles fans. I think some people think that if you take John, you've got to take uh, Yoko. And of course, since his death particularly, she's become sort of saint-like figure in some But you, your problem with Yoko, if I remember, is not that she broke the Beatles up, but, but she encouraged John to become self-aggrandizing. Yes, I think uh, if he had, a, well, he obviously had various faults, but one of them was self-pity. He was very prone to self-pity. Uh, um, many of us are but but he more than others and i think um she encouraged him to drop his sense of humor which he had a very good sense of humor was very good with puns and you know his wordplay um and to become very self-absorbed and i think that uh that affected his art so yeah so i think if um on a on a musical level i think she she didn't do him any favors one of, one of the things that um, the book captures, I think, wonderfully, um, and I, I'd be interested to know if this is what, if you set out to do this, is just how insanely busy their lives must have been in those sort of six or seven years. They recorded, what, 200 and something songs, released how many albums? I mean, they toured. It, it just seems like it, impossible, impossibly busy lives. I know. It all goes so fast. Um, I was just uh, thinking today that, the, the gap between uh, I want to hold your hand and why don't we do it in the road, two different ways of looking at romance, uh, <laughs> four years. And yet, to me, uh, the, you know, it, however old I was, sort of 10-ish, um, you know, it seemed like a kind of lifetime between these, the, the, you know, the, the jolly mop-top Beatles and the hippie Beatles. But it, it was all very, very quick. And if you look at any... Uh, they were also very, very, they obviously had such energy, it was creative energy, which then fed the uh, physical energy. And even John, when he was completely strung out on heroin, was doing, you know, he'd do two, 10 interviews a week, he'd do recordings, he'd do pictures, he wrote long, long letters to fans. You know, he was they were very um, uh, good at, at answering letters and uh, just writing by hand these uh, letters. And so even he, who was in some ways the laziest of Beatles, uh, by normal standards, was super energetic. And they recorded, what, 13 albums in that seven-year period or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and just so many uh, songs, at least I'd say two-thirds of which are really good songs, maybe yeah. more, three quarters. And it's, it, what's also very striking about the book, and I think you capture wonderfully, is the degree to which they were able to enjoy, I mean, 
cosmic amounts of popular success, but also this critical success that people like Dylan wanted to hang out with them and they wanted to, the, the coolest yeah. people wanted to be with them as well as the... I, 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 and I, do, I also go into the area of, of the people who didn't uh, like them, like Anthony Burgess. So, uh, Glenn Gould is a pianist I very much admire. He does kind of slightly jazzed up versions of uh, Bach. Yeah. Um, he, he felt that it was all too easy there, music. Uh, and it was it just took no effort, and I think that was the the main uh, critical thing against them for that. But also, I go into the generation gap. People, my my father born in 1920, or my uh, father-in-law 1923. You know, they'd gone through the war, and at the time when the Beatles were all having fun and having any amount of uh, sex and uh, you know drugs and rock and roll, uh, they were there in Normandy, and and you can see why they resented. The Beatles. You can see why it was, you know, for intellectual reasons and for biographical reasons. So I, I sort of I give them some kind of uh, mouthpiece. I hope. And I, I just I hope you won't mind me asking, but did you, do you get any feedback from Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr about the book? No, I, I mean I wouldn't have expect, <laughs> expected. It. I mean they can't be expected to slog their way through every book. I don't know. I mean I'd obviously very be very uh, pleased uh, if they did but uh, they must have better things to do with their time I suppose. You do, you do have to, rem I did have to remind myself reading the book that, that they're still alive, that McCartney is alive and well and healthy and productive. Yeah, yeah. I know and I do think it's rather, you know, people sometimes mean about Paul McCartney but I think um, to, to have achieved that pinnacle of fame and success and, and to still be a, a functioning human being, I, I think it's extraordinary. When you think how uh, people after about a year of success, go off, can go off the rails. And they went through the whole of the 60s. And, and, and also to have um, that amount of success behind you as well uh, and not be as productive now. How could you possibly be? You most, uh, most even the greatest rock stars like Bob Dylan, their real genius only lasts for about five or six years. It's a very sort of short-term thing, genius in, in pop music. But somehow Paul, I don't know. He, he, it seems to me he conducts himself very well. Yes, and uh, so, so, my, we're running out of time, but I'm, I could talk to you all day. But the one of lots of biographers slightly fall out of love with their subjects after spending so much time with them. Did did that happen to you, or is your is your enthusiasm no, undimmed? Mean, it certainly happened. I mean, I wasn't in love with Princess Margaret, but I was jolly. Uh, I remember my wife saying to me after the actually we were in, we were in Edinburgh. And she said, if Princess Margaret was in the next door room, what would you do? And I said, I'd, I'd just pretend I wasn't here. You know, I had no interest, no further interest. I just thought, I've covered that subject. I don't want to think of her ever again. But with the Beatles, it was the opposite. I could have, I could have written a book five times as long and still been interested. Because it's not just the Beatles. It's a, all these surrounding figures like the Maharishi or Helen Shapiro or, or Brian Epstein, of course. Um, it's just... It's an endlessly fascinating topic, I think. An endlessly fascinating topic. That was fascinating too. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, very best of luck with the prize. Good, thanks very much.
Well, what a lovely conversation that was. Big thanks to Toby and Craig. To keep up to date with our shortlist celebration in the lead-up to the winner announcement on the 24th of November, please do follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and tune in to our weekly watch parties every Wednesday at 5pm featuring further interviews with the authors, experts and the judges. We'll be back next week for a conversation with Matthew Cobb, author of The Idea of the Brain, a history History. And thanks also to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their generous support of this podcast. Bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.